I know what y'all want to talk about this morning, so we're just going to talk about it. Superhero movies. <laughs> Close, right? When it comes to superhero movies, I'm not a huge fan of the sequels. You know, like Thor 2, like eh. But I almost always like the first one. And I almost always like the first one because I like origin stories. I like seeing the beginning. I like seeing the hero when they're not a hero yet. And then seeing how they acquire or discover their powers. And then we get to watch as they learn how to use and direct their powers, hopefully for good. I like all of that. But the really, really great ones are the ones where during the discovering powers phase, there's an element of fear in it. Perhaps the hero tries to pretend, saying, this can't be happening, these powers can't be real. Or they try to hide them and are afraid someone else will discover their secret. We see that a lot. Imagine, if you will, imagine a childhood best friend. Maybe you still keep in contact with them a little bit. Maybe they've been your friend for however many years. And let's say that you're going to visit them this afternoon. Maybe you're wanting to cheer on the Chiefs together. I don't know why you're visiting with them. But when you show up to their house, maybe you show up a few minutes early, and they are literally flying around their house, like Superman flying. The immediate response for many of us, I think, would be fear. Who are you? What are you? And we would probably want to get out of there. I always enjoy those discovering powers scenes in movies, but there's more to it than just that. Because with an origin story with the beginning, there's something exciting about the start of something new. Because at the beginning, at the start, anything is possible. It's like the first season of the TV show Lost, where you think anything could happen. Now, that's a dated reference, but like thematically it checks out, right? Ben, you're too young. We'll talk about age in fellowship with the inclusion group. All right. But at the beginning, where anything could happen, there's a different energy than there is at the end. Because at the end, anything that could have happened, well, if it was going to happen, it would have happened. And perhaps what we wanted to see didn't happen. Or perhaps where it ended up going, we didn't really like it. At the end, there's no more possibility. It's just done. That's the beginning and the end. But perhaps the most exciting is what can happen in the middle. Because in the middle, we have an idea of all the things that could happen. We're still clinging onto that from the beginning. But where the real magic happens is when there is a twist or a surprise that we didn't even imagine in the realm of possibility, and it ended up being wonderful. That's how Jesus teaches. Jesus teaches right there in the middle with the surprise. And especially when we hear it or really study it, really delve into it for the first time. Last week we looked at the seed parables Jesus taught in Mark, where Jesus was teaching to describe the kingdom of God. We spoke about how it's upside down in its nature, how it's many ways opposite of this world and how this world works. But we're going to be spending the next month, the next four weeks starting today. So today's our origin story. How exciting. It's the beginning. 
We're going to be spending these four weeks studying about what it looks like when Jesus brings the kingdom of God to this world. We're going to learn about what the kingdom of God is and what we're describing when we use that language, what it tells us about Jesus, and what it tells us about how we're invited to be a part of it. The opportunities we have to bring the values and actions from the kingdom of God into this world. And the middle. The middle, which we'll be starting here in a few moments, will be amazing. It will be surprising. It will be wonderful because... It's Jesus. Jesus is the middle. You ready? Are we ready? Are we awake? Okay, here we go. So in Mark, Jesus repeatedly teaches what the kingdom of God is, right? We spoke about that last week. I just referenced it. The whole chapter four is the kingdom of God is like this. We talked about how Mark groups thematically. He groups by themes, not chronologically by a timeline. Is anyone here watching the TV show Loki? Okay, I cut that reference. It looks like it's good that I did. We only have a few. It wasn't that great. You're not missing a whole lot. I mean the reference. The show's fine. I, the re I liked season one better. That's who I am. Okay, anyway. So we have Jesus teaching the seed parables, repeatedly telling the disciples, this is what the kingdom of God is like. And then following that, before today's reading, we have a very well-known story. I'm not going to delve deep into it, but I'll read it again as a refresher for us because we need to hear this to set the stage for today. In this part, Jesus just finished teaching to the big crowds. That was the seed parables. Then Jesus and his disciples got in boats to cross the sea, and we're going to pick up in verse 37 of chapter 4. A great windstorm arose. The waves beat into the boats that the boat was already being swamped. Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. The disciples woke him up and said, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? And waking up, Jesus rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Be silent. Be still. Then the wind ceased. There was a dead calm, and Jesus said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? Here's why I bring this up. Think thematic grouping with our passage today. Jesus asked the disciples, Why are you afraid? Why is there fear here? And the disciples, then filled with fear still, say, who is this guy talking about Jesus? Who is this person? Fear and wondering who Jesus is. Keep those things in mind. All right, so I'm going to do a quick recap of today's scripture, because even though we extended Sunday school, I know I still can't preach too long. Or can I? Do I have 15 more minutes? Okay, I'll take five. I'll give you, I'll give inclusion ten. Okay. So in our passage today, Jesus and the disciples, after that boat trip with the storm and the fear and who is this guy, arrive at the other side. As they arrive, a man who had been living in a cemetery, who was handcuffed and chained there because the people were terrified of him because there was fear, and he was so strong that he broke from those chains and no one could hold him down to get him chained back up, but he just remained living in the cemetery. He would howl during the day. He would howl during the night. He would take up stones from the tombstones and beat himself to give him bruises. This guy 
approaches Jesus and his disciples when they arrive. He runs right to Jesus, bows down before Jesus, and shouts, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Jesus tells the unclean spirit, Come out of the man. Jesus asks him his name, and the guy replies, My name is Legion, for we are many. Legion begged Jesus, don't send them out of the region. Not out of the person, out of the region. At the same time, nearby were a ton of pigs on the hillside. They were feeding. The unclean spirits begged Jesus, saying, send us into the swine. So Jesus did. The unclean spirits came out, went into the swine, the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, stampeded down the steep bank into the sea and drowned. The swineherds, think shepherd for pigs, the swineherds saw this, ran back to town, told everybody, because what else are you got to do if you see that? Your boss isn't got to believe you lost 2,000 pigs randomly. You got to have an excuse, right? So they go and they tell everybody. Everybody goes, we got to see this guy. So they go and they find Jesus and the guy who was in the cemetery, just sitting down, hanging out, chatting. And the people were so terrified, knowing that Jesus is the one who changed this man, that even though it was a good thing, they didn't understand it. And groups of humanity have a long history of being afraid of what we don't understand. And out of that fear, they said, Jesus, please go. Please leave. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you are. I don't know. Just please go. Jesus said, okay. Jesus got ready to leave. And the man from the cemetery asked him if he could go with Jesus. And Jesus said, no, you go back to your home, to your people, to the Decapolis, where he lived, and share the story of the Lord and receiving mercy. And that's our passage from today. Now, the Decapolis were a group of ten cities, think like quad cities. Uh, Deca, decade, ten, uh, polis, like metropolis, meaning city, ten cities. All right, let's unpack our passage today a little bit. This we're going to delve a little deeper into. So first, we have a story here filled with things that would have been absolutely repugnant to early hearers, especially in the Jewish culture. There is just list after list of unclean things in this story. The man with an unclean spirit. The man who was living among the dead. The dead, unclean. And where did the unclean spirits go into? The unclean animals, the pigs. And how are all these unclean things finally cleansed? By the power of Christ and the power of water. We still do that with baptism. I don't drown anybody, but we still use water and the power of Jesus, right? See, water is a significant part of throughout scripture. It's part of cleansing rites in the Jewish temple. We have many stories in the Old Testament of water cleansing away. Many of them are violent, just as this one were. Think back to like the flood with Noah, uh, to the Israelites escaping Egypt, and Pharaoh's soldiers caught when the Red Sea that was parted, then came back together, right? So we repeatedly have water as being a cleanser. But it's not just the unclean things that would make early hearers of this story shudder. A lot of it's the way the possessed man describes himself as legion. See, legion's especially interesting because throughout this story, there are signs and signs and signs, and I'm going to hit a few of them, but not all of them, on how this story, this pericope, this passage, is intricately tied 
to the Roman Empire. It's so closely tied that we can't escape it. Legion is a tie to Rome, whose military was organized in legions. You know which legion was in control of this region? Remember with unclean spirit, it didn't say, don't send me out of this man, don't send me out of this region. The 10th legion, legion was in control of this region, and each legion had its own symbol on their banner, their standard. You know what the symbol of the 10th legion was? Anybody? A boar, a wild pig. Yeah? Now, a typical Roman legion would consist of 6,000 infantry and 120 cavalry. But especially for people who living under Rome who were not like the Roman military generals working in it, would also use the word legion to describe a battalion from Rome. A battalion consists of 2,048 soldiers. Does anyone remember how many pigs drowned in the story? About 2,000. It's not a coincidence. The Decapolis, the area of 10 cities where the man was from, was in an area that we know now as modern-day Palestine, but it was formed about 80, 90 years before this story, right after the Roman Empire conquered that area. See, this story is constantly pointing to the world they were living in at that time. It is a highly political story. But when we hear it today, because we're not in that world at that time, because we don't think about the Roman Empire all the time, right? But they did, because they were living in it. We, hearing the story today, more likely ask ourselves or each other, was he actually possessed? Because a lot of times that's what we get focused on as modern hearers. We got time, let's talk about it. The two most common ways to interpret people being possessed in Scripture are these two. One is, is a possession by a demon or unclean spirit or something along those lines. Number two is that we describe it as, well, we know that today as, as mental illness, but they didn't understand that back then, so that's how they would have described it, and it could have been schizophrenia or multiple personality disorder or something along those lines. I think generally speaking, and in this story, it can be faithful and possible to interpret it either way. Here's why. Whether we read this as an evil entity possessing a person or a group of people's understanding 2,000 years ago of mental illness, either way, the end effect is the same. You have a man who was outcast from society, who was sent to live among the dead, and Christ went to him to heal him in order for him to rejoin society, to return home to his family and friends. For remember, as we've already covered in Mark, Christ's healing is about wholeness. It's not just a physical healing, but a social and emotional and spiritual healing as well, because Jesus at his core is all about relationship. His death and resurrection that are to come in Mark, the grace and forgiveness, it is all about restoring us to right relationship with God. It's all about the relationship. So now let's take a step back from that, that deeper dive and look at the story in its entirety, all right? You have a man that is by all current accounts in the story insane, ill, possessed, to the point that he cannot function in society at all. So he's outcasted to live in the spookiest place imaginable. Imagine if you knew somebody that lived in a cemetery permanently. 
would you go hang out and chat with them and sit down for a bit? Probably not, right? And they're there because they can't be around other people at all. I can tell you from my perspective as a pastor that if I had to do a graveside service in that cemetery, that would be terrifying. That was a joke. I mean, it's true, but come on, right? Like, oh, that's, I, I don't want to go to that cemetery. So then the stranger comes into town, talks to the guy from the cemetery, heals him, and all the nearby livestock drowns immediately afterward, jumping into the water. Bacon prices shoot up 4,000% overnight. Deli ham, gone. Honey baked ham, out of business. Horrifying, right? If you're the people in the town, what would your response be? Their response, as we went over, was to tell him to leave. That they saw the power that this man Jesus had over demons. Who could hold that kind of power? And that kind of power, when you see it up close, is terrifying. What we learn in this story about the power of the kingdom of God, what Jesus is talking about, is that it's scary. And it can be absolutely terrifying because it has power over forces that we still don't fully understand. This is kind of the flip side of the parable last week about the seed. You throw the seed, we don't know how it grows, we just trust it's got to grow. This is the other side of that, okay? And what we see is that the choice in front of us is we can choose to willingly follow someone or not, to put ourselves that close to someone or not, who has that kind of power, that earth-shaking power, to follow them and to put ourselves in their line of sight, in their vision, in their vicinity, that's an act of trust. It's an ultimate act of trust. And there's another word for that we use in church. We call that faith. See, with this story repeatedly pointing to Rome, it's telling us that the kingdom of God is not like the Roman Empire. It's telling us that the kingdom of God does not have a military structure. It's not a top-down hierarchy where one person's giving complete control over another, then over another, and so on and so on down the line. The kingdom of God does not outcast people. The kingdom of God does not tear people apart from one another, but restores relationships with love and grace. The kingdom of God is completely different than the Roman Empire. It's completely different than our government today. It's completely different than anything this world has ever created. And when we look at something that is different, something that we don't understand, well, humanity has a long history of being afraid of things we don't understand. We also have a long history of needing to hear things multiple times to remember them. We also have a history of being afraid of what we don't understand. Do I need to say it again? We good? But faith is having trust that while acknowledging that we don't fully understand, and we do not fully understand God, and I fully believe that it is impossible for us to fully understand God or the kingdom of God, certainly during this life. I also fully believe that we can still take steps towards the kingdom of God, even with limited understanding. But to do that, it's like taking a step forward when it's dark, and we can't see, and we don't know what's around the corner, and that 
can be scary. It can also be scary seeing the power that Jesus has and like the people in the story, wondering if anyone should be trusted with that much power. There's a common saying I'm sure many of us have heard, absolute power corrupts absolutely. We've heard that, right? Human history has largely proven that to be true. What makes this different is that Christ is not like any other person. For Christ is also divine. For we worship and follow a God who is good, who creates good things, and has created us in a good image. Sometimes, like the man in the story in the cemetery, that image may be tarnished by evil and sin and structures in the world, but we never get too tarnished for Christ to restore us. Just like how this man was too far gone, was not too far gone, no one in this world is too far gone. None of us, none of our enemies, none of us are outside the reach of Christ. Amen? Amen.